Have you ever noticed that for a city to be really great, people feel that it needs a tower? It needs a tower, doesn't it? A great city needs a tower. Think of all the great cities of our modern world. You know, New York, Beijing, Shanghai, Dubai, London. Part and parcel of being a city of note, it seems, is, is you've got to have a skyscraper, you know, with its, with its top in the heavens, in the clouds. When I, when I was a kid, it seemed that like most of those were in the US. You know, we, we talked about the Empire State Building and the Sears Tower. But it seems that, uh, that now most of them are in the east and in the far east. You notice that? Of the top ten tallest towers in the world, five of them are in China. Well, that kind of surprised me. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. Uh, the US has only got one entry now in the top ten. It's number seven, and it's the One World Trade Center that was built. Uh, and the tallest, this is the interesting thing, and this is tallest by quite a margin. If you look on the picture there, they're, they're over on, uh, on your left there on the screen. That's the, uh, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's over 800 metres tall. That is staggering, isn't it? I mean, it's almost a kilometre up in the air, this tower. That's, uh, that's the very prospect of going up there. It terrifies me. Okay. I stood at the top of the old World Trade Centre. Uh, before it came down, and it was a terrifying thing to stand up there. You can feel the building swaying. I mean, it's and you're high up. These things are huge. I mean, look at this. Look at this next photo. I mean, it really is quite awe-inspiring, isn't it? And that staggering picture. Its top is really in the. It's beyond the clouds, isn't it? Incredible, incredible achievement. Uh, as you enter into that incredible monument there, the Burj Khalifa. Uh, it's a monument to human achievement, isn't it? The following words are inscribed on a wall in English and in Arabic. It says this. It's on the next slide. I am the power. It's like the tower is speaking to you. I am the power that lifts the world's head proudly skyward, surpassing limits and expectations. It's quite something to have engraved on your foundation stones. It's quite brazen, isn't it? It's almost tempting God, isn't it? Now, there isn't really a better way to show off the ability of man, a better symbol of the pride of mankind than a building like that. Now, according to our reading in Genesis 11, the, you know, the desire to create awe-inspiring architecture like this that reaches to the heavens is pretty much as old as civilization itself. It's at least as old as cities. And this verse, these verses we just read to us, they tell us the, about the establishment, actually, of the first city, really, as far as we know, the city of Babel, or actually, its full name, as you probably know it, the city of Babylon. And, and this story tells us about the founding of that city and about how it got its name, the real name that it got, how it really got its name. Don't ask the Babylonians how it got its name. Moses is going to tell you through God's word how it really got its name. Now, and it, now, so just a little bit of context here. In much the same way, as you, as you look at this chapter, in much the same way as we saw that Genesis chapter 2 is like a zoom-in and a close-up view of a bit of Genesis chapter 1, the creation of mankind on, on the sixth day, so also, I think here, Genesis 11 is like a zoom-in and a close-up view of actually chap what's going on in chapter 10. 
the reasons behind the spreading out of the tribes and the nations across the earth. So the happenings at the Tower of Babel, they run alongside what's going on in chapter 10. If you, if you remember, as we read it, the, these events we're looking at this morning, they happen at some point during the life of this man called Peleg in verse 25 of chapter 10, where we're told, in his time the earth was divided. He's talking about what, we're, what we've just had read to us. And it's likely that this is happening just before the days of Nimrod. Remember we read about Nimrod, who took Babylon, we're told, as the first city of his kingdom. doesn't say he established it, by the way, just as he took it. It became his, his center. Now, Sarah, in her wisdom, has warned me not to do what I'm about to do. <laughs> But I was so amused with myself, as often happens, when I came up with what I'm now going to tell you as my original title, <laughs> okay, uh, that, that I'm, I'm going to tell you it. Okay? And I'm doing this for a good reason. I'm doing it because it I'm telling you, it guarantees you will remember the structure of this sermon this morning. My first title was Babel Salad. Okay? Why? Because... This passage is structured around three lettuces, okay? It's so bad, isn't it? Okay, and they're in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 7. And Sarah is right. That is awful, but you will remember it. You will remember this. So let's look at the first let, let's look at the first let us. And it is the let us of independence. It's in verses 1 to 3. Have a look with me. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, linguists search in vain for the one language from which all languages evolved. Evolved, sorry. But if this story is right, actually, the fact that they haven't found that is quite clear, isn't it? I don't suppose they ever will. Languages, you see, according to what we just read here, initially at least, did not evolve. I mean, they have evolved, of course. You know, they're evolving all the time. But this story tells us that actually the diversity of these languages initially burst onto the scene as a result of God's judgment. Imagine a world, though, where there was only one language, as it says here in verse 1. No linguistic barriers. It's actually a wonderful thing, I think. Don't you? I remember that the frustration that I felt when we were living in Tanzania, and we were there as, as missionaries, so I wanted to get to know people and share the gospel with them. And the huge frustration of just thinking, I cannot build any relationships with people. Oh, I can be friendly, and you could sort of tell that people were being friendly back to you, but there was no depth of relationship, no real communication. I knew a chap, we saw him quite regularly, called Amosi, Amos, Amosi, and I would try, and I was trying to get to know him. I couldn't, and you could see he liked being with me, but we just couldn't communicate. Language, foreign languages are so frustrating. Seems to me that actually... This one common language here, this is God's original intention. This is how we designed it, isn't it? That actually the diversity of languages is a powerful force for disunity. The current situation that we live in with, I don't know how many languages, thousands of languages, don't we, and variants, it arises because of sin. 
And so we see yet another picture here. This is for the third time, really, isn't it? We see the clouds gathering as judgment's about to fall. We see things going wrong again. And the first, thing, the first hint in these verses that things are going bad is in, is in verse 2. Look at what it says here. Uh, that men moved eastward. Now, it seems like a, an innocent enough statement, doesn't it? But we've already seen in Genesis that movements eastward, have you noticed? They are never good. It's never good to be traveling east. <laughs> it's a funny thing. Moving eastward seems to be symbolic with moving away from God. Moving away from God. It's picture language for us to know this is a movement away from God, people. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 24, Adam and Eve are banished because of their rebellion in the garden, and they're rejected from Eden. Uh, The whole point of that is they're away from God, out of God's presence. That's the point, isn't it? On which side do they exit the garden? On the east side. It's on the east side that, that the cherubim with a flaming sword, they're put in place. And in the following chapter, chapter 4, after murdering his brother Cain, sorry, sorry, after murdering his brother Cain, (laughs) moves, doesn't he? He moves in what direction? He moves away again. He moves eastward. Chapter 4, verse 16. It's spelled out for us actually there that in going eastward, he is actually going out from the Lord's presence, you see. And we'll see in Genesis 13 again. When we get there, we will see Lot, Abraham's nephew, and he goes east again. Where does he go? He goes east towards Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities synonymous with wickedness. An eastward movement is is just never a good move. It it raises the, the first warning flag to us in the text. So here is humanity then, symbolically here, we're being told that they're walking away from God again. They're straying away from God. And when they find a place to settle here, They utter the first let us of verse 3. Look, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Do you see what's going on here? It's subtle. And it it builds as we go through the text. We've got people here, I mean, they don't want God's provision. That's the point. They won't use stone. Why use stone? We can make our own stone. It's kind of what they're saying here, isn't it? We'll make our own bricks and we will bake them thoroughly in our kilns. There's a really strong expression actually in, 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 in the Hebrew, I think. It says something like, and, and burning we will burn them. <laughs> you know, it means we will really, we will use our technology, our kilns, our, our ingenuity to make really good, hard quality stone to make them strong. And they're not going to use mud or sand or any of these natural building materials around them. No, they're going to boil up a new formula. The chemists will come forwards, and they're going to make a tar-based mortar here. And their impressive technology means, well, we don't need to be dependent on God to provide for us. Everything is in place now to live life with no regard to God, with no regard to their creator. This is the let us of independence and autonomy I don't need God. I will live as if the God who made me, the God who actually, in pretty much living, almost living memory, I should think, judged the whole earth for their sin with a flood. I will live actually now as if he doesn't really exist because I don't really need him. And there probably isn't a God 
So stop worrying and enjoy your life, as the buses tell us. We are self-made, self-providers. Nothing's really changed, isn't it? In the West, we're perhaps now in the modern age a little bit more sophisticated for, than, than this. But we pay little regard towards God as a culture. We, we've made ourselves, we provide for ourselves, we congratulate ourselves on our achievements and we build monuments to them. But likewise, we also fail to acknowledge that everything that we have, every gift, every ability, good things though these are, abilities to do things, every blessing that we enjoy, all of it actually comes from God. All of it's actually provided by his grace. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. That is the God that we're walking away from. How could it be otherwise? So I'm going to be independent, yet, yet God is actually giving me the breath I need as I do these very things. So as the psalmist says in Psalm 14, it is the fool who says there is no God. It's not, not a declaration of atheism there. It's, just, it's more a declaration of independence, actually, in that psalm. I don't need God. As far as I'm concerned, there's no God. He's an irrelevancy. These stories of rebellion and judgment that we get in Genesis, that we've seen cycling over and over again, they are here to warn us. Our hearts are still essentially the same as this. You know, the great decline of humanity into sin, it seems to me, and we've seen the pattern, haven't we, in Genesis, always seems to start the same way. It starts with trying to erase and explain away any need for God. And then it, it, it turns inward and looks, humanity looks at itself. What will we do? We actually replace God with ourselves. That's a weird thing, isn't it? To think we can replace God. And none of us are immune to this tendency very, very interesting. But I, I want to point this out. There is a solution to it, I think. There's a safeguard against it. Do you know what that is? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the safeguard against this, this heart creeping in is thankfulness. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Listen to Paul as he spells out, actually, he's, he's taking you through a cycle about how this roller coaster down into sin actually starts in his day. He's looking at his culture. He says this in Romans chapter 1, talking of hu humanity in general, he's saying, although they knew God, there's an awareness of God there in the background, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul raises that one straight away. They didn't give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. How will we guard our hearts against this let us, this, this facing up to God of, of, of independence? We'll do so by praising God and thanking him for everything. Thank him for everything. That's how we need to be. Wake up, you know, you find something to thank God for. Is that a good thing this morning? Uh, you know, struck by this, because, of course, when you write a sermon, of course, suddenly, just for at least 24 hours, it really hits you uh, with your hard heart. I got it this morning, I thought, well, I'm going, going to the bathroom. What do I thank God for? I'm think, trying to think of things. It's not that hard, actually. Here I am, I'm awake. The sun is shining through the windows. There's good things to eat downstairs, you know. 
Thank him for the day ahead. Thank him for your life, for your health. Thank him for your food, for your family, for your work, for your friends. For every good thing. If you can't find those good things, it's, it's pretty desperate, isn't it? There is always something good. Just thank God for it. Thank God that actually even in the bad things, if you, if you belong to him, even the bad things you can thank him for. Isn't that staggering? Because he promises he'll use them for good for you. It's an amazing thing. And a rightly thankful people then will actually avoid having a mind that becomes darkened and a thinking that is futile, a darkened heart. As simple as though this seems, to neglect God's provision, to ne neglect acknowledging it, thanking him for it, to instead look only to yourself, to, to trust in the might and in the ingenuity of man, really, which is what it boils down to, will only lead you away from him, will only lead you deeper into sin. If these stories in Genesis have told us anything, and we're coming to the end of primeval history here as we get Abraham coming on the, the scene, this repeated history, it teaches you that, doesn't it? You will, if you turn away from God like this, if you do not acknowledge him, if you do not thank him, you will descend into sin. You may not even see it happening to yourself. The let us of independence. Well, look at the second one in verse 4. It's the let us of, of pride. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with cities. I mean, you may not like them. I may not like them. There's nothing inherently wrong with them. And in actual fact... Revelation, the last book of the Bible, sort of describes our final destiny. Heaven is a city. We will be city dwellers eventually, whether you like it or not. Uh, it's a symbol, though, isn't it? I'm not saying that's a reality. But cities keep people together. That's the intention, actually, of the people here. And, it, and it, I guess it's a good intention, isn't it? They want to stay together. Cities give their citizens a sense of identity and of unity together. We're one people together. Look at us. We're Chesterfieldians, aren't we? We've got a sense of, of identity. All that, you know, unity is a, is a good thing. And unity is something that we should desire and we should look at and think, isn't it, isn't it wonderful? We want unity. We want to be together. The problem is, is it's just not tenable. Why? It's not tenable when sin is running rampant. It's a very interesting thing to think about that. We'll think about that a little bit later. But really, all that unity does then, when sin is not in check, is, is it focuses and concentrates the evil in the heart of man. That's what it will do. You put a bunch of sinners together, they'll really start cooking up some stuff, won't they? As we said at the start, towers are a symbol of power and might. They're a symbol of pride. They are the great achievements of their creators. Pride. Pride is the foundational sin, isn't it, in the Bible? And there are two clues that that's precisely what this tower in Babel is about. The first there, have a look in verse 4, is that it is to reach up to the heavens. In their pride, look at what's going on here. These people, they want to ascend to the heights of the gods. That's literally what's going on in their hearts. 
God is nothing special. We can raise ourselves up to his height. Actually, you know what? There's no height to which we cannot ascend as human beings. We will set ourselves up in place of God. If there's uh, a hint of this, even in the expression, uh, let us, that's really interesting, isn't it? You know, it's just let us, let us. Who uses language like that? Let us, in Genesis. The only one to use that expression up before this point is God himself. This is how God speaks. Dare they actually be aping God? Pretending to be God? Speaking like him? Let us do this. Or maybe even worse here with this tower. I wonder, is this mankind making their own little insurance policy? We're now insured against a future flood, right? Try it again, God. This time we'll be ready for you. We'll be up in the heavens. Can't flood us there. Pride. The might of man. We've got to see this in this passage. I think this is what's going on. But secondly, second symbol that this is all about pride is, is they, I mean, look at how it's worded. I mean, they've built it to make a name for themselves. That's how they're expressly being explained here, isn't it? Uh, you know, this is, do you know, there's actually evidence in um, sort of ancient Mesopotamia that actually these ancient rulers, with every brick that they put into their structures, they actually stamped on the back of it their name. Here's, there's one here, look, at a picture. Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually Babylon's, probably his greatest, most well-known king. He was still doing this in his day. On back of every single block, bricks, by the way, made from clay, baked and burned in the ovens, he stamped on the back, I don't know if you can see it there, uh, a statement about himself, you know, I'm, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, this is mine, yeah? And I'm the greatest king that ever lived. And it's My name is there, it's immortalized, it's in stone, says Nebuchadnezzar. I'm, I interesting, there's even tar on this. There's about 10 millimetres of tar on the back side of this. They want immortality. This city wants the whole world to see them, to know them, to stand in awe of them and their achievements. Making a name is actually, again, is, is, a, is another way of trying to usurp God too, isn't it? Who is the one that names things? Who's the one that's actually given man a name in the beginning? It's God. And we'll actually see, uh, we don't want to preach beyond where we're going, but we'll see in direct contrast, we've got to see this contrast in chapter 12, the very next cha 12, chapter uh, 12, when, when God is making his promises to Abraham. What is the promise he gives to Abraham? I will give you a great name, he says to Abraham. I'll make your name great. That's the prerogative of God to do that, not us. And here again, I, I don't think we've really changed, have we? The desire of Mankind for a name hasn't changed. For immortality. It's alive and well in our celebrity culture, isn't it? It's funny, you know, I, I think as I grew up, celebrity culture was we were quite happy to think that, you know, there were the celebrities over there and then there's just us, the plebs, yeah, the normal people. But now, it, you know, with, with the explosion of social media, it seems like, well, you know what? Celebrity might be in reach of every one of us. And it does kind of devalue celebrity somewhat, doesn't it? Some of these things. But it is incredible how many of our young people have their hearts set on being known, their name being out there. 
Because ours is a world that started to worship celebrity in all of its weird guises. You know, from the, the viral YouTuber to the social media influencer. I mean, what's that? To musicians and movie stars and public figures. I mean, you can be famous for even all the wrong reasons, can't you? And it's satisfactory. I'll name no politicians. And celebrity culture gets even into our church, doesn't it? I bet you can all name, those of you who've been kicking around for a little while as Christians, you can all name celebrity pastors, big names, who live the other side of the world from you. How does all of that name-seeking fit in with God's plans, with how God sees things? Listen to his word. First of all, God is against pride. Can we just get that one clear? People seem confused about that. God is actually against pride and boasting. Isaiah chapter 2 says this, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. They will be humbled. He opposes those who lift themselves up. Listen to Peter. He says, young men, (laughs) because probably they are the ones most susceptible, let's be honest. In the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but gives his grace to the humble. And yet God does reserve the right to actually lift people up. He'll lift people up. Look how Peter continues. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Or as James says again, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. You want to be lifted up? You want a name? Humble yourself. Let God give you a name. The rule of thumb, look at Proverbs with its rules of thumb. Let another praise you, says Proverbs 27. Not your own mouth. Really, I think some people need to really listen to that. Someone else and not your own lips. That's where you want your name to come from. Not you. Here is the heart of man exposed again for all to see. Let us be done with God. Let us recreate ourselves. Let's provide with our own hands. Let's have no regard for our maker. Let's raise ourselves up. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let us be God. Let us be God. And so in Babel, we see mankind with his chest puffed out. That's the picture we're painting here, okay, before we move on in this passage. Here he is. He is so proud. He thinks he's so big. He's bold. He's brazen. Together, we, together you know, we, if we stay together, the power of mankind, we can achieve anything if we just believe in ourselves and go for it. I've said this before. It's the anthem our kids have grown up with. I know this maybe makes my kids sick, but... Every time I've been to a, a graduation from primary school, okay, I think, yeah, every, everyone, yeah, everyone, uh, they have this little gathering assembly and they sing this song. It's called Believe. And it, it's shocking. Here's the lyrics. This is the anthem for our children. I can do anything at all. I can climb the highest mountain. I can feel the ocean calling wild and free. I can be anything I want with this hope to drive me onwards. If I can just believe in me, are we great? Have to start them young on this let us, or in this case, this I can of pride. 
And it rots us to the core. Lifting our heads up is so mighty, so big. But finally, verses 5 to 9, they, they bring us to the let us of God's grace. Do we deserve it? No. Have a look at verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, structurally speaking, if you're a Hebrew reader, is where your eyes are drawn. It is the absolute heart of this text. And it's a verse dripping with irony. There is the great city of man. Can you picture it? There's proud mankind with his bricks and his tar. And there they are, rising up from the ground with, with this sophistication, this high technology, this proud brick tower reaching to the clouds. This place is surely a man-made wonder of the world. Stand in awe of Babel. But the Lord came down. You can almost picture God discussing it with the angels. You see this? And what's that commotion going on down there? Building a tower, are they? Let's take a look then. Well, where is it? What about that thing there? To the heavens, you say. I'd better get, take a closer look so I can actually see the thing. Man shakes his fist at God and God laughs. Look at that tiny, puny little thing down there. The prophet Isaiah has it right. Listen, he says of God that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stoops to look at the best efforts of man, you know, like a father looking down at the little, little model that, that the child is making, at the little details, the little people down there. All the puffed up independence and pride of mankind is just smoke and mirrors, isn't it? It's just vapour. It amounts to nothing before God. When God says that nothing will be impossible for them there, you see that? He's actually speaking of their capacity for sin. Really nothing else. And so he comes down. And so he visits them and he judges them. God's judgment falls a third time on mankind. But this is a gracious judgment. I want you to see that. It is a gracious judgment. Here again we see, you remember we talked about it last week, the common grace of mankind. God's, God's kindness, undeserved kindness to the whole of humanity actually. Here are a people, remember, who are living under the rainbow of God's promise to hold back the death sentence that actually they all deserve. Instead here, he disables their ability to continue down the path that they've chosen, at least not so fast. He slows them down, and he does so by confusing their languages. Languages is complex, isn't it? you thought about how complex languages are? If you try to learn one, you'll know. Misunderstandings as well can have some serious consequences. I mean, even 
uh, people speaking a common language, like us and the Americans. I mean, we struggle to understand each other sometimes, don't we? I, lo I love the way they put subtitles on anything that has, like, especially northern accents. I mean, Americans can't cope with an English, a British accent, as they call it. They, they just, they, you know, and we're sitting there thinking, why on earth would you need subtitles for that? But even in our modern age, there is no excuse for a bad translation, actually, isn't it? But big companies can make serious mistakes. That's just how complex languages are. Here's some examples. Coca-Cola's brand name, when first marketed in China, was sometimes translated as Bite the Wax Tadpole. So it's basically you know, a bottle of Bite the Wax Tadpole. Not very appealing, is it? KFC made Chinese consumers a bit apprehensive when finger-licking good was translated as eat your fingers off. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Well, this is my favorite one. Mercedes-Benz entered the Chinese market under the brand name Benzi, which means rush to die. <laughs> great, isn't it? The inability to communicate, it cripples our ability to work together. It can have some, you know, those are funny examples. It can have some desperate consequences too. I think of projects where, where millions, billions have been lost because of mistakes. I mean, that's just in conversions of, you know, we've got pounds and feet and inches and, you know, metric and imperial stuff. Even with all the knowledge, though, that we have today, there's no, there's no greater barrier actually to working together than the inability to clearly understand what your co-worker is saying. This is an amazing way to divide up the world, isn't it? Languages divide like nothing else, really. They create these natural divisions. People migrate away. Soon this, this proud city with all of its citizens, they abandon their ambitious plans and they're dispersed out into the surrounding area. They, they follow their particular language groups. And the city is named Babel, meaning it's, 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 it's like the word Babel, really. Uh, Americans call it Babel, don't they? Tower of Babel. To babble is a confused speech. It's just a nonsense. People are thinking each other are speaking nonsense to each other. And it stands not to pride, but to the folly of pride of mankind. That's really what this tower is a symbol of. The folly of you, puny little ant, trying to stand up and make yourself God. It's a story that reminds us the uncomfortable truth that without the kindness of God in holding us back, the wickedness of man, the pride of man, knows no bounds. Don't we get glimpses of this? You read through the paper and you can read of such unimaginable things as that ugly head of what sin really can become is seen just every now and then. The grace of God in restraining us, in holding us back from what we could be. You know, unity is a wonderful idea. You know, we said before, we, we long for a world that is united, where differences can be laid aside, don't we? But the problem is, the problem is that while sin is still reigning in the human heart, that kind of unity would be a disaster. Sin is virulent, you see. It is, uh, and and it, it thrives, it seems to me. It's, it's very COVID. It thrives when we're in close proximity, Yeah. We all put people together. That infection will start to spread. And so the final curse on the ancient world, a world divided, quarantined, set into sent into lockdown, really, by languages, 
That curse still stands today, holding back the potential wickedness of the world. And it shapes the world that we live in. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? Especially those of you who like languages. Some of you realize, well, actually, you know what? Those are accursed things. But this is not the final destination of mankind. Let's finish up here and think about this. The Bible tells us that one day, every curse will be lifted. And this is one of the curses that will be lifted too. It cannot be while sin remains. Sin must be dealt with. But once sin is dealt with, then this curse can be lifted. And in his vision of the end, how everything ends up, the Apostle John sees uh, in the future a, a multitude standing before the throne of God. We, we go to this so often. It is such a glorious picture, isn't it? It's in Revelation chapter 7. John says this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And they were from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Here's an international community from everywhere. All the languages, they're right there, aren't they? Every tongue, we're told. But what is their cry? And language seems to be no problem anymore here. A united cry. Verse 10, they cried out in a loud voice, salvation, rescue from sin. Sin being dealt with belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Every curse is undone in him. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Savior of all. Now, how do we know that this will be? How do we know that this, this is where the future is headed? Because it's already started. The New Testament church, we went through Acts, didn't we? It bursts onto the scene, the New Testament church, on the day of Pentecost, as the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are miraculously enabled to speak the languages of all the nations that are visiting Jerusalem for the feasts there. And, and when those nations are named, they go from Rome all the way across to Arabia. It's a huge international event. And everyone is hearing the praises of God in their own language. God has undone Babel just for a moment. Switched off the curse of Babel. What a glorious thing. That was a foretaste of what was to come. And even now, even today, as the church of Christ continues to spread out into the world, it's drawing people together from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to become a new humanity. That is what God has planned for us. With no more walls, no more hostility, no more borders, all united under our one King, Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful, glorious vision. Sin will no longer rule. Sin will no longer hold sway in the heart of God's people. There will be only a sweet unity together as we dwell in that eternal city. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about that city. It talks about Abraham looking forward to it, who we're going to be introduced to in the next chapter. It is a city, says the, the author to Hebrews, with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That is a city worth belonging to. So I appeal to you this morning, if you have not already, give up your foolish independence. Acknowledge the God because of whom you live and breathe and have your existence. 
the God who provides for you every day. Give thanks to him. Humble yourself before him. Admit your sin. Call on his name, the name of his glorious son. He won't turn you away. And then, when all the doomed cities of the world, with all their pride, have fallen, yours too will be the hope of that joyful, everlasting city. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge the sinful tendencies in our own hearts to push you away, to ignore you, to want to rule ourselves. A tendency towards pride and self-reliance to lift ourselves up, to seek to make a name for ourselves. Father, grant us true humility that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought but instead that we would look to you and and pour our praises and our thanksgiving out to you for all that you have done for us, that we might trust you and not trust ourselves, that we might fix our eyes on that heavenly city where we will dwell with you forever, where we will ever gaze on our glorious King, Jesus Christ. In whose good name we pray. Amen.